From Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is The Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Bo Adams as we discuss Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, through Exodus chapter 40, verse 38. In our discussion, we use a couple of terms that we should define at the outset. Bo references the Ten Commandments as, quote, the Decalogue. This is just another slightly more scholarly word for the Ten Commandments. Another term that comes up is hermeneutics. And if you haven't listened to our earlier episode, Interpreting the Bible, you may find that helpful. Hermeneutics essentially means the ways and methods that we interpret something. So with that taken care of, let's get into the episode, beginning with a summary of this week's readings by Jill Krantz, a member of our podcast team and a longtime small group facilitator at Hyde Park United Methodist. This week, we are following the Israelites out into the wilderness as they leave behind the gods of Egypt and start their new life together with the God of Israel. After God's spectacular introduction to the Israelites through the seven plagues and then a whirlwind courtship and honeymoon, that great escape across the Red Sea, God and the Israelites are definitely starting to have some difficulties in their relationship. The complaining starts almost immediately. The scenery out in the wilderness is strange. The food they are given is strange. The rules from Moses, those are strange. And camping out with thousands of people is very strange. In Egypt, with Egypt's gods, they had been slaves, but at least they had a house and food. Life had been bad, but at least it was predictable. Now, the Israelites never know where their water or food is coming from. They wonder, where is my dinner? Where is the promised land? Listening to their complaints is like driving in the car with a whiny child. Are we there yet? After the dramatic rescue from Egypt, this seems to be quite a letdown. Let's listen for a few minutes to Matt Hotho as he talks with Bo Adams, who is the director of Pitt's Theology Library at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. They're going to talk about complaining, guardrails, and translating these chapters from the Israelite experience to our experience today. Hey, Bo. So glad you're joining us. So as we were talking before I started recording, it doesn't take long after the miraculous escape from Egypt that the Israelites are complaining to God and to Moses. And you mentioned that this is a common pattern throughout the Bible, that God acts and then the people have no idea what to do. Talk about that a little bit, because, I mean, I see what you're saying about the scope of the story, right? I mean, they just crossed the Red Sea. So, I mean, that's a big deal. God parted mm-hmm. the waters, uh, set them free. And then, yeah, they're they're um, they're complaining and grumbling about what to do next, about their food and their uh, drink. So, yeah, tell me about some other times where that happens. Well, I mean, I think the, the general pattern, if you look at Scripture as a whole, is God acts in these big moments, right? Mm-hmm. That, that major things happen in, in, uh, throughout scripture. And then there is always a period where it's left to the people to say, okay, so what? What are you going to do? How are you going to 
act in the kind of absence of the big God who's acting uh, at these big moments. So I think, as I mentioned to you, a parallel that I think about in the New Testament is the beginning of the Acts narrative, right? Where, again, you've, you've lived as a reader through this incredible drama. Like if you think about the Luke narrative leading up to the crucifixion, then the resurrection, and in the beginning of Acts, you get this incredible scene where the, the apostles are sitting around. He's led them out to Bethany, and he ascends on the clouds. And then there's almost this comic moment of the apostles standing around and saying, okay, what the heck are we supposed to do now, right? right and they right. go back to the upper room and, and, and you kind of get a sense of the anxiety and almost the, para- the, the fact that they're paralyzed sitting in the upper room to say, where is God now? What are we supposed to do now? And I think we see the exact same thing happening uh, in this middle portion of Exodus of people crossing the Red Sea. Now they're in this strange wilderness and kind of saying, where is God now? What are we supposed to do? How are we going to take care of ourselves? Um, and, and so there is this kind of, you go very quickly back to your base human needs and emotions in the absence of that incredible divine presence that's doing these wonderful, miraculous things. That makes a ton of sense. Um, and, and you said that, that the Acts 2 story is almost like a, a, counter, a counterpoint to, the, to what you experience in Exodus, right? And then Acts 2, they kind of get their stuff together. I mean, they don't really spend too much time dilly, dilly-dallying around, right? That's right. Although, interestingly, it takes another big moment from God, right? It takes the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Right, um, right the Pentecost moment. And similarly, you kind of have that in Exodus, right? I mean, how are we going to feed ourselves? Well, God is going to do this miraculous thing where every day God is going to leave manna on the ground. And of course, the, the Israelites themselves can't even handle this incredible gift, right? They, they even mess up the, the gathering of the manna. Um, so again, this kind of reliance upon God, once God does incredible things in one's life, God, you depend on God for the next thing, for the next thing. And so this kind of uh, tension in the narrative of where does God's work in and where does the human work begin, I think is something that's explored throughout this text. Um, and, and, and I mean, interestingly, I mean, Exodus as a whole is um, kind of a, a mishmash of different literary genres playing together, right? So you get these, uh-huh. these, these dramatic narratives like we saw at the beginning of Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, the, the freedom for Egypt. Then you get these kind of grumbling narratives, which are interesting. And then you fall into these kind of legalistic texts, right, where you have all this listing of the laws, not just the Ten Commandments, but the uh, the laws that follow beyond that. Then you get into the strange text about the organization of the tabernacle and mm-hmm. how are we going to set up what we might think of as a kind of religious cult in order to follow uh, Yahweh here. So what I think is going on here, at least as I kind of read it, what you see is how are the people going to live out this liberation that God has gifted them? And one of the ways that the text is exploring that is to say, People can live this out by setting up structures in their lives that keep them focused on the God that has redeemed them, right? So so as we read through these legalistic texts, as we read through these rules and various measurements and how you're supposed to set up the uh, tabernacle, it really is a reminder that human beings have to put guardrails or fences around them that continue to push them back to the God is there or that God has done these wonderful things for you because without those guardrails in place, as we see from the very beginning of uh, the passage that we're looking at today, people are going to go back to their basic human emotions, right? To look out for themselves and to start to grumble about their basic needs. Right. And then, so kind of moving forward in the narrative then, right? You, you've got God giving all this law, um, you know, the yeah. 10 commandments, whatnot. And then uh, he's giving it to Moses, by the way, right? He's not giving it yeah. to all the people and yeah, all the people are right. Yeah. And all the people are just kind of hanging out <laughs> and they're, they're sort of, they don't have their boundaries yet. Right. Yeah. And so they're freaking out and we get this experience in Exodus 32. that just kind of, 
almost seems to come out of nowhere. But then again, you're like, well, I could see it. Like yeah. where you're not hearing from Moses. Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 yeah. nights conceivably. And all of a sudden the people turn to the second in command and go, yeah. well, let's do something. Like, like it's not necessarily let's do something bad. It's just let's do something. Yeah. Right. That's what I love about the golden calf narrative is it, it, you might think of, if you look at kind of intentions, their intentions were pretty good. Right. I mean, like you just said, they want to worship something, right. They want to pay homage to the divine and that's what motivates this golden calf incident. And you're right that it's kind of in the lack of a leadership and in lack, a lack of any kind of structures around them left to their own devices, they do this in, of course, the very wrong way that they're supposed to do it. Um, so you can even set out with the great intentions of I'm going to worship God, but if you don't have those structures around you to kind of control your base human emotions and needs, you're going to get into trouble and quite a bit of trouble as we see in this story. Now, I think it's very interesting to look into those specifics and to kind of think about the historical context. But what rises to the surface for me of kind of the overall thing is that Order, ritual, practice, they matter. How we do things matters because in the void of those, as we've seen before, humans go in their own direction and that's generally not a good way to go. And so while it's easy to get caught up in, well, why are they measuring it this way or why do they want it to look this way? It really is about there is a particular order uh, to the way things should happen. I mean, I think you mentioned when we talked earlier about the, the parallels between the tabernacle instructions and the original creation narrative. Right? right, yeah, yeah. That just as God has ordered the universe in a particular way, God created things in a particular order to work together in a particular way, so it is that the cult itself or the practices of the cult should have some intentionality behind them. Um, and, and that itself can be uh, divinely ordained or divinely uh, ordered. I think it's really interesting. Like if you read, so you get to chapter 20 mm-hmm. and you read the Decalogue, right? And, and we are quite serious about the Ten Commandments, and rightfully so, right? And, and, you know, it makes sense. They're laid out pretty straightforward. Um, But right after that, starting in chapter 21, you get these laws about slaves. You get these laws about violence. You get these strange laws about property that we don't take very seriously, right? Right. So if you, I mean, if you just look at chapter 21, it has an assumption that the Israelites will be taking Hebrew slaves, right? Right. And yeah. I, I don't think we let that sit in to say, this is such a different context. And, and and sometimes we get very literalistic about following chapter 20 without recognizing that chapter 21 continues to remind us that this is a different world and that there has to be an act of translation between that world and the world in which we live. And so to me, that's just a very helpful reminder. None of us are comfortable with saying, okay, this community is going to have slaves, right? Thank God right. we have gotten beyond that. Yes. Yes. We don't apply that same hermeneutic to the texts that kind of surround that. So uh, as much as I think the slave texts are problematic for me, and this is kind of harping back to the church father origin, right, of the third century, which is these were stumbling blocks in the text that kind of wake you up to realize, mm. hey, I got to do some translating here because this is a very different world than the one in which I live. And I, I like to keep that in the forefront of my mind as I read through all of these texts, because to take any of these texts literally can be a quite dangerous thing. Yeah. Can you talk about that for a second too? Because in in an earlier episode, I talked about hermeneutics and kind of broke that down. Tell me more about what you mean when you say translating the text. I like that language. I like that imagery. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, obviously on the, on the surface, we talk about translating a text, moving from the Hebrew text here to the English text. Right. Obviously that's something that's been done for us. That's an interpretive move. But I think what's even more important is we have to recognize that there is a message that comes through this text 
that is not exactly to be equated with the words that appear on the page, right? And so our job as interpreters is really to get what is the kind of critical content of this text and to translate that or to, to retell it within our particular context. Mm. And that becomes so important because even if I read a text like Exodus 21, which talks about how to treat your slaves, I could on the one hand say, well, we don't have slaves, therefore that text is irrelevant to me. Thank God that it is. But on the other hand, maybe there's something deeper in that text that can speak to my context. And so as an interpreter, what's important for me to do is both to understand what was going on at the time that Exodus 21 was written, but also to understand what's going on now and to, and to try to equate those two or, or to, to understand what the writer is trying to tell me in that chapter 21 that can be applicable today. That to me is the more important act of translation. When I think about this text for the average layperson, this is a boring text, right? You just came out of 14 chapters of incredibly high drama, the great mm -hmm. stories that Charlton Heston has shown us. And now you get settled into the establishment of a cult. And that can be boring, but it's really long. And I think that the length of it is suggesting to us it's really important. Yeah. And so when you, when you ask yourselves, why do I care about the way the tabernacle was ordered? I don't think that you do except to say that you do care about the fact that the tabernacle was ordered so carefully. And, you know, historically, you could say this was probably written in a later time when they already had an established temple, all that kind of stuff. What they're trying to tell you is if you're wandering around in the desert, like literally in this text, but just figuratively when you're kind of wandering around, you have to put some structures around your community or around yourself as an individual so that you don't forget who you are, where you came from, why you're here. Yeah. And it's always the God who led you out of Egypt, right? A reminder of, and that's the way in which the cult is set up, right? To, to remind yourself of who has done this thing for you. Well, that does it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate how Bo highlighted the importance of order and structure in these texts that can sometimes seem dry and irrelevant. He made the important observation that these texts were clearly important to the community because they were preserved and included in the final document. However, as Bo also noted, there is an important act of translation that we have to do as the modern readers to reinterpret these texts for our modern context. That isn't always easy, and there may be multiple translations possible, but the task often leads to a deeper appreciation and respect for the Bible. Remember, our goal with this project is to read the Bible without fear or frustration, and getting past our fears sometimes requires tackling them head-on and engaging with the Bible. And I think Bo's example of how to deal with the slavery passage in Exodus 21 is a helpful one. One final note, if you are using a study Bible, chances are that the commentator dealt with the troubling text in Exodus 21 or another one of the troubling laws in Exodus. You'll find that in the footnotes under that section of Exodus. See if reading those footnotes this week gives you any additional insights. And if you wanna share those insights with us, join the Facebook discussion group. Search for The Bible Project 2020 on Facebook and request to join. Jill Kronz produced this episode. I'm Matt Hotho, see you next week.